November 2020, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released final rules amending the regulations to the federal anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law. According to HHS, the amendments are designed to reduce some of the law's unnecessary compliance burdens and to accelerate the transformation of our nation's healthcare system into one that pays for value and promotes coordinated care. While these certainly sound like welcome changes, how will they be perceived and taken advantage of by healthcare providers? And will they succeed in driving industry change? Welcome back to Mince's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Neely Yolen, and I'm joined for back-to-back episodes by two of my colleagues, Karen Lovich and Rachel Yaunt, both based in Mince's DC office. Karen chairs the firm's health law practice, and her regulatory and compliance background includes advising clients on matters pertaining to the False Claims Act, anti-kickback statute, and the Stark Law, and she represents clients in government investigations and self-disclosures pertaining to these laws. Rachel's practice focuses on counseling a broad range of healthcare clients on a variety of regulatory, transactional, and compliance matters, including state and federal anti-kickback and anti-referral laws, and the design and implementation of compliance programs. Welcome, Karen and Rachel. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, same here, Nelly. Thanks for having us. All right, we've got a lot to cover today, over 1,600 pages to be exact, and that's why we're going to break this up into two parts. On today's episode, we're going to focus primarily on the changes to the anti-kickback statute, and on the next episode, we'll tackle the Stark regulations. I figured the best way to kick things off is with a high-level question. That is, what do you think the OIG and CMS were trying to accomplish with these amendments, and do you think they succeeded? Karen, why don't we start with you? Well, that's a great question, Neely, and I think, um, I think the short answer is it remains to be seen. Uh, as some listeners may already know, the Trump administration was very focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system from a traditional fee-for-service system to a value-based system, and in order to do that, needed to remove certain regulatory barriers um, to that transformation. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with what we're referring to when we talk about value-based care, um, I wanted to start by giving you just a couple of really quick examples. And so one example is an insurance company withholding, um, just withholding a percentage of a hospital's reimbursement and then using the money generated by the reduction to fund a value-based incentive that would award the hospital for reducing adverse events and even perhaps penalizing a hospital um, if those events increase. Um, Another great example is a hospital putting in place a pay for performance arrangement to reward physicians who are able to meet certain set performance standards such as shortening turnaround times or reducing readmissions. And so I think everyone in the healthcare industry is really aligned around the idea that uh, value-based care is a good thing and that there are, you know, real uh, valid reasons for wanting to move the system in this direction. And so in June of 2018, the Trump administration announced what was called the Regulatory Sprint to Coordinated Care. And the focus was to address undue impact or burdens associated with regulations implementing Uh, the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, as well as HIPAA 
and 42 CFR Part 2, which governs confidentiality of substance abuse treatment records. So in particular, you know, many in the healthcare industry, you know, have long considered the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law um, to be barriers to most value-based care arrangements. And the Trump administration wanted to address those concerns. And so just, you know, by way of example, again, there are various Stark Law exceptions and anti-kickback safe harbors that require compensation, you know, between two parties to be set in advance, to be fair market value, and to not take into account the volume or value of a physician's referrals or, um, or really anyone's referrals or other business generated between the two parties. And these requirements can inhibit value-based care arrangements. So depending on the structure, shared savings, now these are all different types of value-based arrangements. So shared savings arrangements, gain-sharing arrangements, pay-for-performance arrangements, um, you know, that provide for payments to refrain from ordering unnecessary care, you know, would likely be, in a, be unable to satisfy those requirements. So, you know, to wrap it all up, um, the idea here with these, most of these changes to uh, the anti-kickback statute, as well as the Stark Law, um, was to remove the regulatory barriers to these um, arrangements. And so CMS and OIG finalized the new Stark Law exceptions and new uh, kickback safe harbors um, specific to value-based arrangements, which we are going to talk about in great detail today. Yes, and I think it'll be very interesting to see if providers are going to move forward and take advantage of these so-called loosened regulatory barriers. All right, so let's dig into the new anti-kickback safe harbors. The OIG finalized three new safe harbors to protect individuals and entities in value-based arrangements, and they differ based on level of financial risk assumed by the parties. You have your no-risk, substantial downside risk, and full financial risk arrangements. Let's start with the no-risk value-based arrangement, also known as the Care Coordination Safe Harbor. Um, I'd love it if one of you could tell us what the compliance requirements are and also how, from a practical perspective, we might see the safe harbor come into play. Sure thing. So this new safe harbor, the Care Coordination or No-Risk Safe Harbor, protects in-kind remuneration exchange between value-based enterprise participants. We might call them VBE participants, but value-based enterprise participants, um, provided that the remuneration is used predominantly to engage in value-based activities that are directly connected to care coordination for a target patient population. One thing to keep in mind is that this safe harbor only protects in-kind remuneration. So we're not talking about compensation arrangements for services. We're talking about non-cash items and services that could be provided to healthcare entities to facilitate value-based care. So for example, a hospital and a physician group could engage in care coordination. And as part of that, the hospital might provide the physician group with care managers to ensure that patients are receiving appropriate care post-discharge, and they might also provide remote monitoring technology to the physician group um, that would alert the group when a patient needs um, a healthcare intervention. And, and this remote monitoring technology might be designed to prevent an unnecessary emergency room visit or even a hospital readmission. 
that would be an example of the type of remuneration that the VBE would be giving to the to the physician group under this safe harbor. Importantly, to qualify for the safe harbor, the recipient of the remuneration has to contribute 15% of the offeror's costs or 15% of the fair market value of the remuneration. So in our example, that physician group would need to contribute 15% of the cost or the fair market value of those care managers and that remote monitoring technology in order to fully satisfy the safe harbor. As you pointed out, there's no need for there to be any assumption of risk from the payer or by the VBE participants to qualify for this safe harbor, which makes it easier to satisfy for many healthcare companies that don't want to assume financial risk. But on the flip side, it comes with fairly onerous writing and monitoring and that contribution requirement as well to fully satisfy the safe harbor. Under the writing requirement, the writing has to include either the fair market value of the remuneration or the offer's cost of the remuneration, and it also has to include the percentage and amount contributed by the recipient. The parties also have to establish specific outcome measures that they're going to monitor to ensure that the arrangement is making progress towards achieving the value-based purpose of the arrangement. So that's one of the challenges here. Um, Healthcare companies that enter into a value-based arrangement um, using this safe harbor, they might find down the road that the arrangement's not actually improving quality of care or it's not actually reducing costs, in which case they're going to need to modify or even terminate the arrangement in order to still qualify for safe harbor protection. Another thing to keep in mind is that as with all of the value-based safe harbors, there's a host of healthcare entities that are excluded, um, and that includes manufacturers and distributors, wholesalers, labs, pharmacies, and demi-post suppliers. So, Rachel, who's responsible for documenting and those outcome measures? Does it matter which party takes on that obligation or is it just some type of joint requirement? The reason I'm asking this question is because this goes back to something I asked earlier, which is how are we going to see some of these physician groups enter into these arrangements? On the one hand, the groups, the smaller groups, I should say, might be more inclined to enter into no-risk financial arrangement, a value-based arrangement, because it's no risk and they don't have to put any of their own dollars at stake. Um, On the other hand, this seems quite burdensome. You know, there's a lot of requirements here, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how these types of groups, or maybe they rely on the hospitals to do most of the heavy lifting. But basically, do you see all types of groups taking advantage of this type of safe harbor? Well, to answer your first question, the writing requirement just says that there has to be a writing entered into between the offerer and the recipient of the remuneration. Um, The classic example and the one that we were just sort of talking about would be that there would be some kind of written contract or some kind of written um, memo of understanding between the hospital and the physician group that would set forth the terms of the the remuneration that's offered. Um, And so I think, yes, CMS and I'm sorry, the OIG probably anticipates the hospital taking on the majority of that administrative burden, but it's not specifically required by the safe harbor. Thanks, Rachel. 
You also mentioned that many types of healthcare providers are excluded from the value-based safe harbors, but I know there was a limited pathway that the OIG created for certain medical device and supply manufacturers and MEPO suppliers to use the care coordination or no-risk safe harbor. What are your thoughts on this limited pathway? So I can actually take that question. You're right, Neely. There definitely is a limited pathway for medical device and supply manufacturers, as well as DemiPost suppliers, uh, with DemiPost standing for durable medical equipment, orthotics, prosthetics, and supplies. And those entities are permitted, as long as they are not physician-owned distributors, to contribute digital health technology um, under the care coordination arrangement safe harbor only. And so in the regulations, they're referred to as limited technology participants. And so again, as is almost always the case with uh, complex regulations like this, I think the concept is best illustrated with an example. And so I think one of the most obvious would be a medical technology company partnering with a physician practice to coordinate and manage care for patients who've been discharged from the hospital by giving the practice, you know, digitally equipped devices that collect and transmit data um, to monitor a patient's condition in real time. And, you know, but the one thing to just uh, remind everyone about with respect to this example is that under the care coordination safe harbor, it would require the physician practice to contribute 15% of the cost or uh, fair market value of the devices. It's so interesting. Okay, so we have medical device and supply manufacturers, Demipo suppliers who have this limited pathway, but not certain other entities. Why do you think the OIG is comfortable with arrangements like the one you just described as compared to, say, a lab contributing vials to physician practice or a pharmaceutical manufacturer contributing medication adherence services? You know, I from the very beginning, even in the proposed rules, it was clear that, you know, OIG thought that it was important to potentially find a pathway to protect uh, digital health technology and, you know, mentioned a couple of specific examples such as cloud storage services to monitor blood sugar levels and transmit data, and also mentioned diabetes management services. And so, you know, OIG, you know, was looking for a way to do this and looking for a justification and asked for comments on how it might be able to allow for the uh, provision of this technology um, while still guarding against fraud and abuse. And so there were many, many comments uh, on this topic, uh, with many commenters offering additional examples of situations where it would be beneficial to the value-based arrangement to allow for this type of technology. And so OIG ultimately said that it, you know, shared the commenters' views regarding Um, the desirability of allowing VBE participants to use digital health technology tools um, in the context of, you know, care coordination. And so, you know, OIG did contrast this uh, narrow exception with, um, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers and others who aren't likely to be involved with frontline care coordination. And the concern was that, uh, 
pharma manufacturers and others might use these safe harbors uh, to protect arrangements that are actually intended to market their products or require clinicians to use a particular product rather than to you know, improve care coordination. Um, one last thing I guess I would just mention is that OIG also pointed out that uh, labs and pharmaceutical companies um, and perhaps others are just generally ineligible for safe harbor protection because there's a high, heightened risk of fraud and abuse based on you know, historical enforcement experience. Um, and also because they heavily depend on practitioner prescriptions and referrals. So hopefully that answers your question, Neely. Mm, yeah, no, it does. It's very interesting. Thank you. Um, the other two safe harbor value-based arrangements are those with substantial downside risk and full risk. And in addition to hearing about those requirements, I'm going to again kind of ask the flip side of the same question, which is, I'd love for you to weigh in on whether you think this will actually spur innovation, particularly from the smaller group practices, um, since, again, they, they may not necessarily have the appetite to take on financial risk. Uh, so for the other two safe harbors, the first one is the full financial risk one, and this one protects monetary and in-kind remuneration, but the value-based enterprise has to be at risk on a prospective basis for the full cost of care covered by the applicable payer for each patient in the target patient population for at least one year. So I think this one in particular has very limited utility because there's just not going to be that many healthcare entities, particularly not small or group practices that are going to want to take on this level of financial risk. Um, I don't think it will necessarily spur a lot of innovation, and we just probably won't see a lot of providers taking advantage of this safe harbor. The second one is the safe harbor for substantial downside financial risk, and it's a little bit less onerous as far as the assumption of financial risk. It protects monetary and in-kind remuneration exchange um, pursuant to value-based arrangements between value-based enterprises and participants if the value-based enterprise um, assumes substantial downside financial risk from a payer and the value-based enterprise participant assumes a meaningful share of the value-based enterprise's total risk. So just to sort of um, <laughs> explain that in a way that might be a little bit more digestible, if we're going back to think about like a hospital and a physician group, the hospital and the physician group together could be the value-based enterprise that assumes uh, substantial downside financial risk from a payer. And then the physician group might be the value-based enterprise participant that assumes a meaningful share of that total risk. This one, I think, has a lot of really... Um, kind of onerous technical requirements, but it's probably going to be much more useful, particularly for those hospitals and physician groups and maybe um, other types of entities that would be interested in these arrangements with uh, health systems. So thanks. No, in case, sorry, in case, in case it isn't obvious from my questions, I, I do work with a lot of physician groups and that's why I'm pressing on those questions. Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you. Oh, no, that's fine. I was just going to try and give a quick example of how this might work. Um, we might have a situation where we have, um, I'll try and not use a physician group for once, but we'll have a situation where a hospital and a post-acute care provider, together they form a value-based enterprise and then they contract with a payer 
for an episodic payment for hip replacement surgery. And so then the hospital and the post-acute care provider, they're going to coordinate care for patients under the episodic payment. And so then they could rely on this safe harbor to protect both monetary and in-kind remuneration exchange between the hospital and the post-acute provider. So for example, the value-based enterprise, it could give the hospital money that it uses to hire a staff member who coordinates patients transition to the post-acute care provider um, after that patient undergoes hip replacement surgery. Thank you. All right, before we move on from this topic, I thought it would make sense to pause and briefly talk about the stark exceptions for value-based arrangements and how they differ from or perhaps interplay with the anti-kickback statute safe harbors. Yeah, so let me just briefly talk about the Stark Law exceptions. Um, There are three. Um, They're similar to the safe harbors in that they're sort of broken down based on the level of risk that's assumed by the value-based enterprise or the physician. But there's some intentional differences, and the exceptions are a little less difficult to fully satisfy um, because if you think about it, compliance with the Stark Law exception is mandatory for any financial relationships subject to the Stark Law in order for there to still be DHS referrals. So they're a little bit easier um, to satisfy. The first one, the full risk exception, requires the VBE to assume full financial risk for all items and services covered by the payer. Um, And so this is another one we see as having pretty limited utility because there's just not going to be that many entities, particularly physician groups, that are going to want to assume that level of risk. The the second one, the meaningful downside financial risk exception, is a little different because Um, There's actually no requirement that the value-based enterprise assumes risk. We're actually talking here about financial risk at the physician level. And so in order to use this exception, the physician has to assume 10% financial risk. And then the last one, um, this exception applies regardless of the level of risk. Um, and, And so it's the easiest from a financial risk perspective, but it's perhaps the most onerous exception um, as far as all the technical requirements. Um, Under this exception, you know, physician could assume like no financial risk or somewhere between less uh, than 10% financial risk anyways. And so there's a number of additional requirements in order to guard against patient and program abuse. Uh, CMS permits both monetary and non-monetary remuneration between the parties. And also a, another thing to contrast from the safe harbors is that the Stark Law exceptions do not exclude specific entities. So those labs, manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors are not excluded from the Stark Law exceptions. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. All right. We'll talk more, a lot more about the Stark Law amendments on our next episode. Um, There's just one more new safe harbor and one modification to an existing safe harbor that I'm interested in hearing about. One I see as clearly patient care driven and the other as provider driven, and that's the new patient engagement and support safe harbor and the changes to the personal services and management contract safe harbor. Can you talk a little bit about those? Uh, Yeah, I'd be happy to do that, Neely. 
So the new safe harbor for patient engagement and support allows healthcare entities to provide tools and supports to patients if they are intended to improve quality or health outcomes and advance one or more of five very specific goals. While it sounds broad in concept, it's actually going to be very limited in practice because it's only available to VBE participants uh, providing tools and support to the VBE's patient population. And so, you know, as a result, this safe harbor doesn't allow any other individuals or entities such as, again, uh, pharmaceutical companies, labs, or DEMIPO suppliers um, to take advantage of the safe harbor, um, nor can a hospital or physician practice rely upon this safe harbor to provide tools and supports to patients outside the context of a VBE. In addition, there are a number of other requirements that have to be met. Uh, we don't have time to talk about all of them today, but I guess I would just mention a couple of the more important requirements. Uh, one is that the safe harbor, it only allows for in-kind remuneration and it's capped at a value of $500 annually. So in-kind remuneration means no cash or cash equivalents, um, only, you know, for example, uh, an actual uh, item. And so, you know, we talked about a few types of items earlier that would be useful in this in a value-based arrangement to provide a patients. And so, you know, again, uh, giving patients, you know, a tool such as a smartwatch for monitoring patient health um, and transmitting health data back to the patient's physician. Um, another possible example we uh, haven't talked about would be a smart pill bottle that dispenses medications to patients at preset times. And another would be parking vouchers or free childcare during medical visits. Again, as long as the tools and supports are provided in the context of a VBE. So it will really be interesting to see, you know, how many uh, providers in the VBE context are able to take advantage of this particular safe harbor. So Neely had also mentioned that there uh, had been a change to an existing safe harbor. And I think we all see this as a, you know, very provider friendly, useful and important change. Uh, so parties who are entering into contracts for services in the healthcare setting typically rely on the personal services uh, safe harbor. Uh, for protection of their arrangements. And historically, that safe harbor required compensation to be set in advance. And we talked a little bit about this earlier uh, when we were discussing, you know, some of the barriers that needed to be removed for value-based arrangements. And so in addition to the fact that compensation needed to be set in advance, if an arrangement involved a part-time schedule, it had to include details in the agreement that specify the schedule length and exact charge for the intervals. And parties often found these requirements really difficult to meet if, for example, you wanted to pay by the hour because an hourly arrangement, you know, wouldn't be set in advance. Or if you wanted to contract for services on an as-needed basis for, you know, ER department coverage, I think is a good example. And so when you're getting into the contract, 
you honestly have no idea, you know, what the schedule length and exact charge is going to be. Might no charge, but, you know, you're not going to know the schedule at that point. And you're not going to know how long you're going to need the services for. So the final rule um, has has changed one of those requirements and removed one of those requirements um, to allow contracting parties greater flexibility. So the part-time schedule requirement um, no longer exists. And while the set in advance requirement does remain in the regulation, um, only the methodology rather than the compensation itself has to be set in advance. And, you know, so for example, that means that parties could offer or agree to hourly compensation of $100 an hour without knowing in advance how many hours were going to be needed and therefore, you know, the full amount of compensation. So, you know, I think that this is going to make, you know, contracting just a little bit easier and give parties a little greater comfort if they're entering into an arrangement on it on an hourly basis. In addition to that, there is a a new provision added to the personal services safe harbor that specifically addresses outcomes-based payment arrangements. And so parties seeking to enter into that type of arrangement outside the context of a VBE might find the safe harbor to be useful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have to say that of all the changes to the anti-kickback statute, this aggregate compensation set in advance requirement has generated the most email in my personal inbox. Uh, but obviously that's uh, the nature of my practice. But um, And uh, I definitely need to check out that smart medication dispensary you mentioned. I've never heard of that. And I, I definitely know a bunch of people who could use it. Um, well, thank you. I know we covered a lot in a very short period of time. Before we wrap up, I have to ask, do you have any key takeaways or advice for specific providers, hospitals, group practices, labs, pharmaceutical manufacturers that you, you'd want to highlight before we drop off? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I think really, um, as you can probably tell from some of the examples we've given, health systems and physician groups are really the big winners here. Um, the agencies clearly design the safe harbors and the exceptions to offer these um, entity types, a lot of flexibility to enter into innovative value-based care arrangements that are going to be protected under both the anti-kickback statute and comply with the Stark Law. On the other hand, manufacturers and pharmacy benefit man managers, laboratories and pharmacies, they're generally ineligible for protection under the value-based safe harbors other than the limited option for manufacturers of digital health technology and the demi-post suppliers that exchange digital health technology, which Karen talked about. These entities, the manufacturers, the labs, and the pharmacies, um, they've been excluded from safe harbor protection, but one thing we should note is that they haven't been excluded from the Stark Law exceptions for value-based arrangements. So we may see them engage in value-based activities with physician groups or hospitals in the future if they can get comfortable with the risk associated with not fully satisfying a safe harbor. 
Definitely. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much for being here today. And that brings us to the end of our show. We have part two of this two-part discussion coming up. So if you have any questions about this episode or you'd like to propose questions for our next episode, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a couple of weeks.